Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. My guest today is the philosopher and historian of religions, Professor Jeff Kripal from Rice University, where he is also Associate Dean of Humanities. He's the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalen Institute in California. Jeff is the author of eight books on mysticism, Gnosticism, esotericism, parapsychology, sacred sexuality, and psychology. One of his main concerns and the subject of his most recent book, The Flip, is the dismissal in academic and scientific circles of well-attested psychic experiences that are by definition impossible if you hold a materialist view that confines consciousness to the brain. The difficulty is that there are no impossible facts, but academics and scientists fear for their reputation if they take these experiences seriously. Paradoxically, many of these people will admit in private to having such experiences, while those same supposedly skeptical colleagues are in the identical situation. The acceptable is respectable and the respectable is acceptable. So it requires considerable intellectual courage to come out. In this sense, Jeff describes himself as operating behind enemy lines in trying to bring humanity back into the humanities and redefine the humanities as the study of consciousness within culture. As he argues, there's an urgent need to put the impossible back on the table. How did you get into this in the first place? Was there an experience that, uh, or an, an encounter that set you on your path? It, it depends on what you mean by this. I mean, do you mean the study of religion or do you mean the study yeah. of paranormal phenomena? Or what, what exactly do you, do you mean by this? Well, but both what led to your your current work so i spent the first half of my career studying sexuality and gender and mystical forms of eroticism and but i i suspect that's not what you're asking about you're really asking about these anomalous events or what i call the impossible and the origins of those i was not trained to think about those i was not particularly interested in that sort of thing until about early millennium uh, actually is when i began to run into it constantly. I was writing a history of the human potential movement in California. And it was essentially a book about the California counterculture. And I was talking to lots of people and, and interviewing a lot of people and getting to know them. And they were telling me stories that were just crazy. But <laughs> I believed them because I knew these people and I knew they weren't just making this up. And I found it I found it a bit disturbing on a moral level, but I also found it really intellectually fascinating that I had no way of thinking about these stories. That my field, which ostensibly, ostensibly religion has something to do with strange stories, right? Um, we had essentially erased all of this and essentially denied it for decades, if not a century or two. And so I began to kind of look into that as how the field had erased this and why it had erased it and what it had gained from, from this denial. And I became convinced that it needed to be put back on the table if we were ever going to really begin to understand what religion really is and how it functions. And so it was a very gradual process. And it was really a, it was a kind of slow conversion or flip for me 
just talking to people and taking them seriously and not dismissing them. I had had a few of these in my past, but I'm not, I'm not a particularly gifted person in this way. I had just had enough experience to make me sympathetic. Let me put it that way. And did you at that stage, your early career, have, have any important mentors? My, my mentors were wonderful. And they taught me how to think about mysticism and mythology, but not the miraculous or the paranormal or the anomalous. None of those things were ever talked about. So you had to arrive at that yourself. uh, Right. I had to recover that from about a century ago. I mean, the fathers of our disciplines were obsessed with these things. But my immediate mentors, they weren't dismissive. They, They just didn't talk about them. It wasn't part of what scholarship was in the 1980s and 90s. And when I did talk to them about it, it turns out they had had their own experiences, of course. And so there was always this kind of, the intellectual in the closet kind of thing. But no, they didn't teach me how to think about these things. I had I had to basically recreate that. Yes, I, I've always been struck by the, the sort of disjunction between the, the public and the private, that, that people will talk about these things around a dinner table, but certainly not mention them at departmental meetings, uh, even right. though uh, you probably find that most people around the table have had similar experiences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the notion that these things are rare is simply a function of our censorship, our effective social censorship. I think if we would just lift that ban, essentially, on talking about these things, it would turn out almost everyone's had these experiences, and they're just part of our they're part of human nature. They're part of us. No, I I agree. It's it's almost as if we need a kind of new coming out movement, (laughs) respectable people to admit that they have had things which go beyond. They're very respectable ideas. Yeah, I mean, I did study sexuality for 20 years. And, you know, it took a long time for people to be able to talk about sexuality. And this is kind of like that. This is kind of another secret that we don't want to talk about, but we all know about in some way. Oh, that's a very interesting comparison. In other words, it's it's a similar taboo. And then what books were formative in, in, as you were, getting into the field? There were a couple things. So first of all, I think the only historian of religions in the 90s talking about this was Jess Hollenbeck, uh-huh. um, who's an American scholar of religion and wrote a big, big book just called Mysticism. And the subtitle had empowerment. In the, but he was alone. He was basically alone in the 90s. When I started to look into this, I had to go back to William James and his friend Frederick Myers, who really started a lot of this. But I also became utterly enamored of Charles Fort, who, if you have not read Charles Fort, you just must. Um, And then I also became really taken with Jacques Vallée, who's a contemporary of ours, um, a French astronomer and computer scientist who writes beautiful books about the UFO phenomenon. And also a, a French sociologist named Bertrand Neust, who is also our contemporary. And I just took those four authors and I formed them into this book called Authors of the Impossible as a way of showing how this was theorized at very different points. You know, Frederick Myers in the 19th century, uh, Charles Ford in the 20s and 30s in the U.S. now, Jacques Vallée in France and then the U.S. in the 70s, 80s mostly, and then Bertrand Muest mostly in the 90s and the 2000s. 
and just kind of this sweep of, of people thinking about this. But I had to recover those people. Um, they had essentially been just forgotten or not read at all in, in Bertrand's case, because it's all in French. Yes, I mean, some of those names are actually new to me, so I'll have to uh, follow them up. But the, talk a little bit about William James, because um, for me, he's such a seminal figure and somebody who was able to uh, hold these various polarities together and be a professor of philosophy, psychology, and president of the Society for Psychical Research. Well, so James is really interesting to me because of what we were not told in graduate school. I mean, so we all read James. James was was his varieties of religious experience, which I think comes out in 1903 or so, 1901, somewhere in there, is like one of the classics of the study of religion. Everybody reads it. Everybody has to read it. Everybody talks about it. But nobody ever tells you that his best friend was Frederick Myers and that James was also wrote about 700 pages on psychical research. Nobody tells you that. No. All, you get, all you get is the acceptable pragmatist slash psychologist slash philosopher. You do not get the psychical researcher. I was fascinated by that. I, I was just fascinated by how we received one part of William James, but not the other part. Actually, is a parallel there with Newton. Newton's influence was mainly on the scientific, but when Keynes rediscovered his papers, he he said he was the last of the magicians, um, uh, 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 as well as being the great pioneering physicists. I think the difference is. I mean, I don't. I'm not a biographer or scholar of Newton, obviously, but I think there was probably more of a channeling or a split within Newton than there was in James. I mean. James really was theorizing about religion and mysticism with psychical research. They're, they're, they were much more... Yes, uh, more integrated in his case. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not saying they weren't in Newton. I, I, I would not be the person to know. But my, my just sense of Newton and what I've read about those papers is that these were sort of really wild side passions that he had, that he was very committed to, but his mathematical and, and work in physics was could be read separately, even though it was connected in him. It's obvious they're more connected in James. I very much agree. I don't know how well authenticated it is, but, but do you know the red pajamas story about Starbuck and William James? I, you know, I've heard it, but... I'll just relate it quickly for listeners, because it's quite, it's quite amusing. And it was Starbuck who died first, because they agreed that um, whoever died first would contact them. And an Irish medium wrote a letter to him at Harvard, and he said, I got this very strange message from um, someone who calls himself Starbuck. And he just says, red pajamas. Um, and does that mean anything to you? And it turned out that they had been in Paris as young men. And James had forgotten his pajamas. And they'd gone in and bought another new pair. And they were bright red. And they'd been, he'd been ribbing James about this. And so although you might think it's a very trivial kind of example, it's exactly the kind of, of an anecdote that doesn't mean anything at all to the medium, but of course is highly significant to the recipient. Yeah. And then, uh, Jeff, in terms of your understanding of consciousness or the way that your understanding of consciousness has evolved, um, is there any particular experience you had um, that was formative in that respect? I had one, what, what I would call, out-of-body experience in Calcutta in 19... 89 which was which was overwhelming and very dramatic but 
I, I don't think it's exactly what flipped me. I mean, again, it made me very sympathetic when I heard similar stories. Um, it, it involved altered states of energy and, and a kind of ecstatic out-of-body experience. It was very much, it was very imaginal, very mm -hmm. much expressed through the imagination. I knew that at the time. I, I didn't take it literally, but it was profound. And something conceptual or cognitive was, was essentially transmitted into me through it. So it was a, it was a kind of intellectual experience and not, not simply an emotional or an ecstatic one. But what I think what really flipped me was stories like the red pajamas that people told me, like living mm -hmm. people told me over and over and over again. And particularly, frankly, precognitive stories. I'm the most impressed with the precognitive phenomena. And I realized that once we take those seriously, <laughs> we're, we're down a rabbit hole and space and time no longer are functioning the way they're supposed to. And I just, I just found that so intellectually delicious and um, so provocative and so convincing. I mean, the precognitive stuff to me is just kind of, you just kind of give up at some point. You're like, yeah. You, you really need a reframe. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, you, you're just like, okay. And if that happens, this ain't this world ain't what I thought it was. And so it, it was that kind of gradual process. You know, people talk about a braid. It was, it was like hundreds and then thousands of stories, little strands of hair that start to braid this really big, thick rope that eventually it's just like, there's no way you're going to break that. It's just, it just is now. But I can't really put my finger on one moment that happened. But I always found the, the people the most convincing and the most poignant because they're people. They're not, they're not texts. And um, so I want to really stress that. It was, there was a kind of interpersonal component to this that was very powerful. How has your involvement with Esalen affected your, the way your thinking has developed? Well, completely. I mean... This long flip, as it were, was all indebted to Esalen. I mean, I started to study Esalen and write that history in about 2000. And the reason I did was because I was essentially chased out of India, by the way, for my work on sexuality and Hinduism. So I had to study a community that wasn't going to chase me away. And Esalen seemed like a good, a good bet. But when I got into that work, it was all these people who began telling me these stories. And then... I started to get invited to these private symposia there that were called SIRSEM, the SIRSEM meetings, which I'm sure you know about, uh, led by Ed Kelly and, and Adam Crabtree. And there I, I spent literally months. I mean, these were five-day symposia, but I, I went to 50 of these. I spent literally months with a lot of physicists, a lot of quantum physicists, actually, um, a lot of neuroscientists, a lot of philosophers, historians of science, historians of religion, and practicing psychics and experiencers of different types. And it was just, um, <laughs> to sit in a room with experiencers and scientists, it's just, first of all, it's hilarious, but it's just so much fun because these scientists, of course, were very open-minded and they had big hearts and big minds and they were laughing too. They were giggling along and it was just great. It was fantastic and it really shifted me, uh, changed me about what 
I thought about science for one thing, but also what I thought about religion and big reframe. Could you could you say a little bit about the books that have come out of uh, Sir Sam? So yeah, I was present for the very very beginning of this. My my first trip to Esalen was in November, the last week of November of 1998. And the first week of December of 1998 was the first meeting of what would become the SIRSAM meetings, which would run for about 14 years. And they were led eventually by Ed Kelly, who's a neuroscientist, Harvard-trained neuroscientist connected to the University of Virginia, and Adam Crabtree, a, a, a psychotherapist who, who lives up in Toronto. And they published two big books. One was called Irreducible Mind, and the other one was called Beyond Physicalism, and they're, by the way, they're about to release a third volume called Consciousness Unbound. And each of these volumes, they're big. <laughs> you can hurt people with these books. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, they're big, serious books, um, but they're, they're very rigorous and they're very convincing if you, if you read through them. Um, and basically their argument is that the materialist paradigm just doesn't work. And there's just all this other data that it can't, not only can it not explain this data, it won't even look at this data. And the reason it won't look at it is because once you look at it, then you can no longer hold on to your paradigm. That's very, very <laughs> just, true. It just doesn't work. Uh, and it doesn't mean it doesn't work for all kinds of other things. It just means that it's not adequate. It's not a complete theory. And we're trying to get at this, this new theory of what mind or consciousness might be. And of course, William James and Frederick Myers and others realized that over 100 years ago. I know. That's what's sad about it. We just, you know, it's, at one level, we haven't come very far at all. And then with this understanding of consciousness, how, how does that affect um, the way you look at life and the way you live your own life? Well... I just think it's more interesting for one thing. It's, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's fascinating and fantastic in the kind of sci-fi sense of things. I, I have long found the materialist paradigm literally and clinically depressing. I, I think it leads to despair and nihilism and it's a real part of the problem of the world. And, and it, and it, and it's literally nihilistic. There's no meaning in it. Um, I find these other models of mind as somehow fundamental uh, and behind, behind, say, cosmic evolution or biological evolution. I find them utterly fascinating. I think they tie into science fiction in really interesting ways. I think they lead to new mythologies, um, new conceptions of what the human is. And they're just fun. I mean, I've given hundreds of lectures at universities and podcasts, and, and people are just they're just having fun. I mean, it's, they're laughing and they're like, you can see their eyes light up. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a different world. It's a different world to live in. Totally. And completely understand that, you know, with my own engagement with these fields. And then do, do you have a favorite proverb or a maxim that means a lot to you? Yeah, I do. I mean, I had, I've, I've come up with my own motto actually. Oh, um, great. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've even worked with some classicists on it, and I'll screw up the Latin for you. But um, basically, I asked them, okay, what would the Latin be for to make the impossible possible? That's that's really my motto, is how to make the impossible yeah. possible. Yeah. And by that, I don't mean, of course, that things are really impossible. I mean, we just think they're impossible because we lack a theory to render them possible. And so the project of an intellectual or a writer is to create a new worldview or a theory in which previously impossible things are now possible. 
<clears throat> well, of course, what's well, all in scare quotes, isn't it? Because we both know that these impossible things are not only not impossible, but they are common. Of course, but they are, they're literally impossible to many people out there. I mean, I mean, you, you know, as well as anyone that lots of people would just say none of this can really happen because in their, in their theoretical framework, they literally are impossible. Both Alfred Russell Wallace and, and uh, Larry Lashan have writ written about this. And, and Larry says that he's, a, he incidentally, he celebrated his 100th birthday only a few weeks ago. Wow. Um, and he said there are no impossible facts. <laughs> I mean, that's, no, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, you can't, you can't logically uh, get around that one, even if you try to. And then finally, Jeff, if you were to give your younger self any advice from your current perspective, what would that be? I don't know. I mean, that's a good one, David. Nobody's ever asked me that. I don't actually have any regrets, which is kind of that question. And I think what I did early on in life I needed to do. So I don't know. I don't, if I, my future self was to visit my former self, this is essentially what you're asking, or, or if this self were to visit myself 20 years ago, I think he'd say, hang in there. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll get better. I mean, things were really bad for me in the 90s. I mean, they were really, really bad. I can't tell you how bad they were. And I, I could have used a visit from my future self. Yes, like uh, one finds in Time and the Soul with Jacob Needleman. He plays with this idea of uh, dialogue between the older and the younger. Oh, I, I have students and dear friends who were literally visited by themselves from the future. And I, I have no doubt that that happens. I, I don't seem to be capable of it, but it, it clearly happens. The other thing, you know, David, the other thing I, I think a lot about, this is kind of a, an experiment for me. I, I half believe it. I think when I write books, what I'm really writing for is some future self. And, and by that, I don't mean th these bodies. I mean, literally future bodies and selves, you know, kind of a reincarnational model. We're really working for our future lives, not, not this one. Well, I think that's a good point to, to end on and something we can all ponder. So, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Imaginal Inspirations and sharing your own insights and experience. My pleasure, David. <laughs>